other thing, too, we want to pray for Jerry Ortu as he's headed down to the Master's Mission this week to teach a class in mechanics. So let's pray for him and for the word as we look at it this morning. So, Lord God, we lift up to you our brother Jerry. Pray that you give him safe travels and that his ministry at the mission would be fruitful um, and help that mission move forward in its work. We thank you constantly for how you work in our lives. And we pray this morning as we look into your scriptures that you would guide us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Luke this morning, but I just want to give you a little bit of a preview for Advent. So starting next Sunday, Advent season starts, and this year our series is going to be uh, The Glory of Christ, and we are going to be looking at various sections from the Apostle John's Gospel account. So we'll be looking forward to that. More information will be in news and notes. But today we're continuing in in Luke chapter 16, and uh, in this gospel account there are two parables that we've been looking at. One was the shrewd steward, a very interesting parable, a difficult one. Today we're looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and they both begin the same way. So if you go back in Luke chapter 16, you look at verse 1, you look at verse 19, they both begin with these words. There was a certain rich man. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. Again, these parables speak to the mixed blessings that come from wealth, the enjoyment of them, the burden of responsibility. Most of us know this kind of situation that we need to live with on a daily basis and the challenges that come from that. And a couple Sundays ago, we learned from the parable of the shrewd steward that God would have us use his money to move his purposes forward in the world. And we contrasted the way disciples of Jesus use their funds and the way those who are the scoffers of Jesus use theirs. Well, today we're looking at two interesting people in this parable. One is a callous, indulgent rich man, and the other is a dependent, faithful poor man. Now, of course, not all rich people are like this rich man in our story. Some are very compassionate and generous, like we'll be introduced to Abraham himself in our story. And not all poor people are as dependent and faithful toward God as there are in this passage that we're looking at either. Some are very self-righteous and lazy as well. So we have to keep that in perspective because this parable is a parable of extremes. And the extremes are put before us to teach us a point. And to draw our attention to the rawness of reality in life. So turning your Bibles to Luke 16, starting in verse 19. You can also follow along in what's printed for you. And we'll read this parable as we go. It's a story that Christ followers really enjoy because, among many other things, the violent contrasts between the two characters in this story. And we'll learn as disciples of Jesus that we should be reassured in our generosity. Because in the midst of trials in this world, we as God's people continue to be generous in the midst of troubles, and we can remain strong in our faith in Jesus Christ. This parable serves multiple purposes. So this morning, it might be a parable for you to call you to repentance. It might be a parable that is something that is going to support you this morning and encourage you that you are blessed. It might be a parable of discipleship that will take you into further obedience with Jesus Christ. And it teaches two main truths. The first in verses 19 to 23 is that death 
changes everything, for the better and for the worse. And in verses 24 to 31, destinies are fixed forever, for eternal happiness and for eternal misery. Now, today's parable, again, is unique. It's unique to Luke's gospel. In other words, you don't find it in Matthew and Mark and the other places. And it's been identified previously already by Jesus as he's telling these parables that he's telling them on purpose against the Pharisees who were, in verse 14, lovers of money. Lovers of money. So it's a parable against greed. And in this parable, he compares the Pharisees to the rich man. And he compares all of those that he ministers to as our Lord and Savior to the character of Lazarus. So in this parable, the rich man's the main character. Lazarus, you'll notice, never talks. And Abraham is the one who speaks for God. It's a very vivid illustration of these eternal truths that we're looking at this morning. And having reckoned with them, we can move forward in our lives with confidence. So the first lesson from the parable is that death changes everything, for the better and for the worse. And so in this parable, the earthly life of two men is introduced in verses 19 to 21, and then their afterlife of these two men in verses 22 and 23. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So character number one, this certain rich man here, notice his outer garment is described, his mantle is made from expensive dyed purple, made from snails, it was his display of wealth because he thought of himself as royalty, even though maybe he was not. And his inner garments, his underclothes even, were expensive, made of fine linen. And every day, he lived luxuriously, living like the Caesars, thinking that he was like them. And then there's character number two, this certain poor man. He's a very poor man likely a crippled beggar in the story, what are his garments? His garments are his sores that covered his whole body. And every day he was brought to the rich man's gate to lay down and beg for crumbs. And since the story of Jesus, as he tells it, that he longed for those crumbs indicates he probably never or very rarely ever got any. Some suggest that these Crumbs were even the breadcrumbs that were used to wipe the grease off your hands and then thrown on the floor and the dogs would eat them. These aren't pets. These are wild dogs. And then the ultimate insult comes to this poor man because it's those dogs that go and lick his sores. This is a very graphic portrayal of two radically contrasting lifestyles. Lazarus suffers in silence and loneliness while the rich man enjoys himself to the fullest. The naming of this poor man, Lazarus, is most likely to emphasize his character. The name was a common name, and it means one who depends upon God. Since the poor man gets a name, tradition has also assigned various names to the rich man. So you probably know the most famous name, and that is Dives. 
which is simply Latin for rich man. Now, the implication from the story is that the rich man depends upon his money for comfort, while the poor man, Lazarus, depends upon God for his. Jesus already taught in context, if you look back in verse 13, that no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, we're introduced very briefly as Jesus tells this story, this parable, this fictional story to illustrate some eternal truths. And then now we're introduced to their afterlife very quickly. In verse 22, the story continues. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So as we read this story that Jesus is telling, the poor man died, and he's carried by the angels immediately to Abraham's side, to glory, to heaven. Did you notice he's not buried? It reminds us of the stories of Moses and Elijah, who were not buried. But the rich man, you'll notice in the story, he just gets buried. Abraham is the father of the faithful, the father of true believers, the father of the people of God. He is an example of compassionate, generous wealth. That's who Abraham is. And again, it's a great part of the hope of the believers that we would one day be united with the patriarchs in glory and be drawn to their side to fellowship and worship with them, our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this reminds us of the Messianic banquet that has come up so often in the Gospel of Luke from Isaiah 25 with the imagery. And it's already been covered in Luke 13, where Jesus said, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast out. And they will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. So this rich man, we learn he's in Hades. It's a general term for death, very similar to the Hebrew word, Sha'ol, or death, or the grave, or dirt. It's a different term than that's usually used for hell, which is Gehenna, and yet he is in torment. And there's some overlap in the use of these terms in the original languages, but in other words, to make it really, really simple, this rich man, he's in the hell part of Hades. That's where he is. Now, a quick note here to notice is that we can understand from this parable, you know, as Jesus tells it, that he's looking ahead to many realities that are going to come in the future, while at the same time really sticking to basics. You can't draw out a ton of theology from par parables like this about eternal life, but but we'll draw out a few, I think. But anyway, the rich man, he looks up and sees the poor man that he knew, and he didn't help. He even knew his name. He knew it was Lazarus. It's perhaps another reason that the poor man gets a name in the story, because Jesus is trying to draw a relationship between these two. The rich man sees Lazarus at Abraham's bosom, filled up with blessing 
but being so far away, you can barely see them. The distance itself is a good picture of the drastically different destinies that these two men faced. Now notice the complete reversal of fortune. In death, the glory and the agony. The poor man who trusted in God, he has become the eternally rich man. And we're happy for him. And realize that the rich man will soon become the eternal beggar who will never find mercy, not even one drop. In fact, the Apostle James will later give a very, very similar warning to those in the church when he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are going to come upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously in the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened yourselves for a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man who does you no harm. You see, death changes everything in this parable Jesus teaches for the better and for the worse. You see, the rich man in our parable, he's not being judged for being rich, but for being callous and self-indulgent while being rich. Our use of money, you see, toward those in need around us tells the truth about who we really are in our souls and our relationship with God. You see, generosity and compassion are marks of those who truly know God. Even it could be rich people like Abraham. Well, character number two, the poor man, he's not being blessed because he's poor, but because he has faith in God to the very end while being poor. Our dependence upon God in difficult circumstances also tells the truth about us, about our souls, about our standing with God. Faithfulness and dependence are marks of those who truly know God, and especially true amongst those who are poor and have very little in this world. Well, the larger message should be very, very simple. You cannot miss it. Jesus, as he's teaching this parable, is saying, again, that in context, he's the Messiah who has brought the kingdom. Don't miss it while he's preaching it, while he's teaching it, while he's clearly before your eyes. You see, there is no second chance. Death is it. It changes everything. And judgment will be torment in both body and soul forever, and it will be perfectly just according to God's design. So the great motivation is to get right with God right now, to repent of our sins, to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who can forgive us of our sins and bring us salvation and the hope of life eternal. You know, this parable was well paid attention to by other New Testament writers. For example, the Apostle Paul 
in his opening letter to the second, the second Thessalonians, in the opening of this letter, he basically mirrors this parable. Listen to what he says in Second Thessalonians, beginning in verse one, chapter one, verse six. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony among you has been believed. You see, the Pharisees, listening to this parable, they believed in future judgment. They just weren't acting accordingly. We all know there's going to be a future judgment where people get what they deserve. It's intuitive. Pretty much anybody you talk to is going to believe that type of thing. The question is whether you're living according to the truth. Again, as disciples of Jesus, though, here this morning, when we read these types of things, the application for us goes quite differently. And it goes along the lines as we look at this parable and we look at Lazarus. And we see that indeed we can be reassured in our generosity and that we can be comforted in our trials to remain strong in our faith in Jesus Christ, that he is worth it, that living for him is worth it all. Well, that's the first lesson of the parable, that death changes everything. The second lesson is that destinies are fixed forever for eternal happiness, and for eternal misery. And so in the second part of the parable, there are two requests that the rich man in torment makes. Both get denied by God. The first is mercy for himself, and he gets none. The second request is mercy for other people, also denied. And so we read, in beginning in verse 24, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So this rich man implores Abraham for a small measure of mercy in his agony. And it actually might be viewed as Jesus telling the story, can you believe it that this rich man is still unrepentant? And somehow he still thinks that Lazarus does his bidding for him. Spiritual heritage and wealth are no guarantee for anyone for future after death. You know, similar temptations are around today just as they were at the time that Jesus told this parable. People think, that they're going to get to heaven because they know family members they're going to get to heaven. 
people think that they're going to get to heaven because they live a nice, middle-class life of morality, and that somehow that that is going to be what earns them a place at the table with Abraham and the patriarchs. Same temptations today. But as the scripture says in John chapter 1, as many as received Jesus Christ, to them he has given the right to become children of God. No one is naturally a child of God. We're children of wrath, as the scriptures say. And the gospel goes on to say, that is, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, you don't get in by your family, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. You can't earn your way in. You can't force your way in. But of God. Have you been born of God? Born again. You see, you cannot be born into the Christian faith. You cannot be born into a destiny of heaven. You have to put your personal faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, all this rich man wants is a drop of water on his tongue. That's it. But we should remember that, you know, all Lazarus wanted was a crumb. So no crumb, no water. Perfectly just. Abraham responds with a little bit of compassion in the story by addressing the man as a child and saying that you know that you are the one that puts yourself in this spot. You knew about the promises of God. You knew about the warnings. You only have yourself to blame. You have simply reaped what you have sown. There will be no mercy in eternal judgment. The time of mercy is past. Here's the message for those who are alive today. A warning and a promise for this generation. It comes from the Apostle Paul as well in Romans chapter 2. After he has already established the fact that everyone is sinful. In Romans 2.4 it says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment. The righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor, immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. You know, furthermore, in our passage, there is no way to cross the boundary that God has set. It's fixed. Did you notice that? You see, the righteous and the wicked might, for all eternity, view each other for the furtherance of your own glory for those in God's presence and the furtherance of misery for those being punished eternally in hell. Isaiah's prophecy 
ends with these words. Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all of mankind. Well, that's his first request. It's denied. The second request is also denied. And now we really get to the point of the story. Why is Jesus telling this parable? It's so violent. It's so extreme. It so goes from one end to the opposite. What is it that he's getting to? Well, finally, it comes down to this at the very end of the parable. In verses 27 and following, he said, the rich man, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come also into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know who Jesus is talking about, right? The rich man realizes his own situation is hopeless, and so he requests additional mercy for his family. He asks Abraham to again send Lazarus to warn his five brothers. Still apparently, he thinks, the Lazarus works for him. He lives the same way. All his brothers live the same way. And they're soon going to share the same destiny and eternal torment. But he believes that as someone, especially Lazarus, so maybe in the storyline, they already knew who this guy was. Maybe if Lazarus appeared, came back from the dead, or he appeared to them in a vision, or something like that, he could explain the whole situation to his brothers from the other side. And then they would believe, they would repent, and they would change. But Abraham responds very, very directly and says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament scriptures. Why don't they read them? They speak of the eternal realities that are going on in the storyline right now. Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament speak to the ethics of the kingdom. You want to know what's right? And what's wrong? It's all over Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets speak about the Messiah. You want to know who he is? Then read them. And you would know that Jesus is the one. The scripture warns and promises to us that an appearance is not going to add any clarity. His brothers, the Pharisees, the unbelievers, they should read much more carefully, the scriptures, and heed the revelation that has been given to them, just like people today should do. You know, Jesus taught earlier about this problem in John chapter 5, because it's really an issue of unwillingness to believe. A love for worldliness is what's going on. In John chapter 5, starting in verse 39, very similar words, similar teaching of Jesus, because, you know, it's people who even read the scriptures that he's talking about here, 
Look back in Luke 16 a moment, verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's who Jesus is talking to and talking about. And in John chapter 5, we read these words. Jesus says to his critics, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you're going to find eternal life. At these scriptures that bear witness to me, Jesus says, but you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you. That you don't have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writing, how will you believe my words? These are the very same types of words that Jesus spoke much, much earlier. And so back to the rich man. Oh, he strongly insists, oh, that a visit will fix everything. Indeed, it'll lead to his brother's repentance. And perhaps he's thinking that, well, he didn't heed himself the words of Moses and the prophets. But if somebody had appeared to him from the other side, well, then he would have believed them. He would have repented. Sounds so much like people today, doesn't it? He's wrong. And people today are wrong. Abraham responds that if people don't listen to the scriptures, nothing else is going to do. That's the truth. History even shows this. For example, you might simply look at the example of the Exodus in the Bible. That generation saw the most number of most powerful miracles of God, yet God was not pleased with them because they did not believe. The proof of the fallacious nature of this argument of the rich man would be the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he's referring to as he tells this parable. You won't believe, even if someone rises from the dead, which would be him. Why? Because they're unwilling to believe. You see, supernatural signs are not the decisive factor in people's salvation. Believing Scripture is. Let me say that again. Supernatural signs are not the decisive factor in salvation, but believing the Scripture is. It's a big mistake to think that somehow that the Bible's insufficient or unclear or not helpful 
in leading people to salvation. We know this can be a temptation because we're such human-centered people and we gravitate toward the spectacular. And some of us have traveled, myself, in many places in the world where miracles are what it's all about. People reject Jesus not because they lack signs and wonders. They reject Jesus because they're unwilling to give up their lives to him, to sacrifice themselves, and to believe who he said he is and what he came to do. Well, lesson number two is very simple. Destinies are eternally fixed. The main point of the passage is pretty obvious. If people reject God's ultimate revelation in Jesus Christ, they're doomed. Jesus' intention in teaching this whole money lesson, if you will, is so that the Pharisees, and as Luke records it, his readers would learn the lesson. You see, money is not the lesson, but it's a perfect illustration of the lesson because it tells you exactly where your heart is. Again, as disciples of Jesus here this morning, we come to a passage like this, and sometimes we wonder, what is really the application for us? And it's to be assured that your generosity is worth it. To be assured and comforted that your pain in life is worth it. So that you remain strong in your faith in Jesus Christ, and you receive this eternal happiness to which the scriptures point. You know, at the heart of this passage is a call to repent and not to postpone the decision. The Pharisees missed the Messiah, and they missed the kingdom, because among other things, they love money too much. Don't let that happen to you. As we mentioned at the very beginning, this parable has different lessons for different people. For some of us, it's a call to repent, and to come to faith in Jesus Christ. For others, it's a reassurance of blessing, and to still others, it's a discipleship lesson to follow him more faithfully. Because these two truths are two truths. Death will change everything. And your destiny at death will be fixed forever. And so if you haven't repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you should do that without delay. Because, again, death changes everything. You know, there was a good book that came out a while ago called One Minute After You Die by Erwin Lutzer. Pastor Emeritus, the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. It's a great little book. One minute after you die. In this book, he writes, oh, the subtitle's even better. The subtitle of the book is A Preview of Your Final Destination. But Dr. Lutzer writes in here that the purpose of this book is to study what the Bible says about life beyond. Many who read it will be comforted. Others will be disturbed, and everyone, I hope, will be instructed. I pray that God will help me make heaven so inviting that those who are ready to enter can scarcely wait to get there. And I pray also that I shall make hell so fearsome that those who are not ready to die shall quickly come to trust the only one who can save them from the wrath to come. So I really encourage you to get the book great evangelistic tool. It's a great encouragement for yourself one minute after you die by Erwin Lutzer. Again, we should really return to maybe something very practical at the end. Use of wealth. 
been all over Luke chapter 16. It's a discipleship lesson, really. And we learned from the previous parable that God would have us use his money to advance his purposes in this world. And what we learned very simply from this particular parable is that we can rest assured that we can use our money, as we use our money for generosity and for compassion, that God is pleased. And finally, there's reassurance that there's more blessing to come into our lives. It may seem odd to look at a passage like this, probably one of the harshest teachings that Jesus ever gave. And as a Christian, to find encouragement from this passage and to be strongly encouraged and to be ensured that it's worth it all to serve our Lord Jesus Christ to the very end. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we give you praise this morning because you are our eternal king, our redeemer and our savior. And we have no hope but hope in you. We pray that you would keep us completely fixed upon yourself and the hope that is in you and all the glory and the honor and the grace to be revealed on that day when you return. And I pray, Lord, that if there are those here this morning who need to repent and put their faith in you, Lord Jesus, that you would drive them hard to do so before the day is over. Amen.